Good morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I would love to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And if you didn't bring a Bible, you can find a blue Bible on the floor uh, near you. And you can find Ephesians chapter 2 on page 976. There we started uh, the series in Ephesians last Sunday. And um, the theme that we are looking at um, in Ephesians is, is this theme that the Apostle Paul weaves throughout this, this book. Um, it's, it's this, that the church is God's family. And uh, that might raise questions for um, some of us. And, uh, you know, it, the, the question is this. Okay, so you Christians... You think you are the family of God. You think you're better than the rest of us. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 answers that question with a resounding no. So why don't you stand with me as we read God's word to us in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. Let's hear God's word together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, as we uh, pause in the midst of our busy lives, our busy uh, weekends, the busyness of our own hearts, would you help us to hear your word this morning? Would you help us to see that Jesus is is more beautiful, that you are um, more gracious to us than we would have ever had the guts to ask you for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, there are very few things that everybody can agree on these days, but I think the, the one thing we can all agree on is that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, we live in a messed up world. We don't have to go very far back in memory, uh, do we, to find examples. Just in the past couple weeks, I mean, we've been kind of overwhelmed with uh, news about natural disaster in our world. Hurricanes and flood and earthquake and um, it feels oftentimes like the world is against us. A couple weeks ago, my kids, one of my, one of my boys, we were in the car, and he says, Dad, do you know what the, what the deadliest animal in the world is? And I thought, I'm probably like a shark, right? 
what's, I don't know, what's the dead, like, snakes, snakes are awful, kill all the snakes everywhere. He said, no, it's the mosquito. I thought, well, you're eight, you don't know what you're talking about. So I looked it up, and according to the Gates Foundation, uh, mosquitoes are responsible for the death of about 725,000 people every year. Um, you know, almost three quarters of a million people die every year because of mosquito-borne disease. These little bugs, like, we live in a world where these little tiny bugs are so against us that three quarters of a million people die from them every year. But it's not just that the world is against us, we are part of the problem. Um, we, we are not just the victims of the world attacking us, but we are part of the problem, human beings. And I only need to say two words to um, help you to see what I'm talking about. And the two words are this, national anthem. Okay? Unless you've been living under a rock for the past week, you've seen the news, you've seen the arguments on the internet about you know, national football league players taking, you know, taking a knee during the national anthem. And, and uh, we've responded to this really with maturity as a, as a species, haven't we? Um, it's just been this display of how we can disagree amicably. No, right? I mean, people are just, we're up in arms, we're shouting at each other of, about respect and patriotism or about free speech. And it just shows, you know, this is messed up. This is a messed up situation. Now you're going, which, what are you saying? Which side's messed up? Yes, okay? Yes, that's all I'm going to say. Both. Um, Ephesians. Ephesians uh, tells us what we already know, that this world is messed up and we've got problems too. And yet Ephesians is overflowing with incredible truth. In Ephesians, Paul is telling us this great, he's saying the mystery of God, this plan that God is out working out in the, in the course of human history. It's been a mystery, but he's now made it known to us, and it's this, that God is making people like us into his family. Um, that's, the, that's the overwhelming message, the good news that Paul wants us to see in Ephesians. But um, before we can see how good that good news is, we've got to see how bad the bad news is. Think about this. If you're, if you're out for a hike, if you're out or take a highway, you're going for a hike, and uh, you're just hiking along, and all of a sudden, these res this rescue crew parachutes in, and they say, we're here to save you. Now, is that good news? Well, it depends on whether or not you are lost, right? I mean, if you're saying, I've done this hike dozens of times, I'm just over the ridge from my car, I know where I am, you'd be offended, right? That these people, well, I don't need to be saved, I don't need to be rescued, what are you talking about? But if you are utterly and completely lost, you have no idea where you are, you're totally hopeless, and somebody shows up to save you, then you're overwhelmingly grateful. So two different situations, but the, but the third, I think, is the more accurate one. Imagine you are actually lost and you don't know it. I remember when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, our family was on vacation in Yosemite, and my little brother and I you know, said to our parents, we're just gonna, we're kind of gonna go ahead and we'll, we'll meet you at the, you know, the top of wherever we're gonna, we're on this hike. We'll meet you at that lake that we're hiking to. And my brother and I were riding our bikes through the woods and it was awesome. And all of a sudden this ranger comes out around the corner and he says, are you the Hales boys? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Your parents are looking for you. <laughs> 
like, what do you mean? We're getting, like, we know where we're going. We're headed right there. And he's like, the lake you're looking for is back there, boys. <laughs> we were lost and we didn't know it. And somebody saved us. And that's us. We've got to see ourselves as we truly are if we're going to see God's work as truly good news. And it's very clear in this passage that Paul wants us to see the goodness of God. And if we're going to see the goodness of God, we've got to see our starting place. Um, Before God can adopt us as his children, what does that mean we have to be? We have to be orphans. right? Before we realize that we have been saved, we have to see that we've been lost. Before you can appreciate the good news, you've got to look at the bad news. So the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is who we are by nature. Who we are by nature. Uh, We are messed up. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We can all agree on that. But if we ask the follow-up question, what's the follow-up question? Okay, well, what's wrong with us? You know, there's no agreement on that, right? And uh, you ask that question, you get divergent answers, you get all kinds of self-justification and defensiveness. But the Bible doesn't mince words here. Paul is very clear. Let me paint this picture before we look at what he says. Um, I remember several years ago, one of my boys, I don't even remember which one it was at this point, um, I think it's about two years old. Ashley and I, we hit on the stroke of genius as parents. We discovered that the, when you have a two-year-old, this is genius. Get your kids shoes they can put on themselves, okay? Um, so we got our, our, one of our boys shoes you can put, on, them, put on, on his own. Doesn't need to tie them. You know, it's slightly, it makes the, the process of leaving the house just ever so slightly less painful when you've got kids that age. And um, the problem with kids, though, is they, that age, they always put them on their own feet, right? And so I remember my, my son, he's got his shoes. Go, you know, go put your shoes on. He shows up, he's got his shoes on the wrong feet. And I look at him and I go, son, your shoes are on the wrong feet. And he looks at me and he goes, actually, they are on the right feet. And I look at him and I go, son, please. Like, I don't even need you to change them, but could you just acknowledge with me here that your shoes are on the wrong feet? And he looks down at his shoes and he looks up at me and he says, actually, they are on the right feet. And that is you, and that is me. And it's not just our shoes that are on backwards, it's our lives that are on backwards. We're doing it wrong, and we look at God, and we insist, actually, I am doing it the right way. That's who we are. The first three verses of Ephesians 2 are pretty bleak in their assessment of the human race, aren't they? Paul says, But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You hear that? We are the walking dead, (laughs) apart from God. Listen, what does he not say? He doesn't say, you are sick, you are misinformed, you are headed in just slightly the wrong direction. What you need is somebody to kind of give you a course correction. It says, no, the human race and every member of it individually, we have turned our back on our creator. We have turned our back on the author of life, and we are dead. Now you might be thinking, come on, man. Lighten up a little bit. It's a little bit strong, right? What does the Bible mean when it says that we're dead? It means that we have no interest in God. 
we are not uh, aware of God, we do not seek God, we are not sensitive to Him, we don't want to spend time with Him, we don't call out to Him as our Father, we have no awareness of His reality. We are as responsive to God by nature as a corpse. Uh, people say to me all the time, I, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but like it's this occupational hazard as a pastor. As soon as somebody finds out, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. You know, they, I mean, 99% of the time they say, oh, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious, but I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Um, I heard a, a pastor acquaintance of mine t- tell a story to you about, um, he was talking about this. He says, you know, by nature, human beings are dead. This guy comes out of the service and says, that is a load of rubbish. I am a very good, he says, I volunteer for the Special Olympics. Are you going to tell me that that's not a good thing? The pastor said, well, it depends. Why do you do it? He said, I do it because it makes me feel good about myself. You see the issue, there are, the Bible is very clear, there are a lot of thing, people who do things that in a like external sense are positive, worthwhile, and yet we do them for ourselves. Um, I mean, think about what am I saying if I volunteer the Special Olympics because it makes me feel good about myself? I am using these people to feel better about myself. Is that a good thing? The Bible is very clear that all of these things that we do that are externally maybe um, positive, worthwhile things, apart from God, we only do them to pad our resumes and bolster our self-confidence. They're attempts to find life when we've turned our back on the author of life. We're dead. Now, how is it possible that we could do these things that are in some way like positive for the world, and yet God says that they're the result of of our own deadness. Um, how can we spend so much time, so much energy, so much money on things that are externally worthwhile and yet be dead to the beauty and truth and goodness of who God is? Well, the second thing Paul says about us is, um, is this. In verse 2, he says, We follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the air. Now, the word follow there in that uh, translation is a little bit too weak. The Greek original, uh, it means more like we are mastered by. Um, we are mastered by the, the, just the course of the world and by the devil himself. Um, and then he goes on to say that we are the sons of disobedience. I think that sounds like it could be like a new TV show on FX coming <laughs> later this fall. Um, what does it mean? It means we are enslaved. Uh, we are deceived. We have been deluded. We don't see ourselves as we are. We think that we're good. We think we're doing good things. We think we're um, good people. But we are deceived. We're captivated. I'll give you an example of I, yesterday afternoon. I was walking past my neighbor's garage and I see him getting out of the car. I see two soccer bags in the back of his trunk. <clears throat> I say, oh, it looks like you're, doing the, you're having the same kind of day I am. And we just have this like, self-loathing conversation for a few minutes. We're like, yeah, three soccer games today. Got to take the kids to a birthday party in between. Like, oh, my life. Like, I have to do that. I have to coach my kids' soccer game, right? Like, think about how deluded I am if I think that I am sort of obligated to spend my whole day slaving away so that my kids can play. Soccer, right? Like, what, 
Isn't that a messed up way to live? Um, I mean, I don't even know what the mess of that is, but something is not right if I'm slaving to make to let my kids play. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, we had friends several years ago talk about they buying a house. You know, this was back in the days when you could get a house with no money down. And they buy this house because everybody says, well, you have to own a house, right? It's the pathway to freedom in America. It's like, you gotta own your own house. It's the American dream. And they buy this house and then they discover, like, they can't afford this house. And uh, they're, they're working away, they're trying to fix the house so they can sell it, but they can't sell it and they can't afford the payment. So this thing we think is supposed to give us freedom actually ends up enslaving us. That's a picture of our hearts. We are enslaved, we're deceived, we don't see things as they really are. Maybe the best example of this today is technology. Right, um, what is the promise of technology? The promise of technology is that it's gonna make our lives easier. Like why spend money on a thing if it doesn't make things easier? And yet, you know, we have these supercomputers that we carry around in our pockets because they're supposed to connect us with people all the time, and yet, we spend our times looking at screens and disconnected from the people that are sitting right in front of us. We are enslaved and we are deceived. We're not responsive to God. Okay, so why are Christians so morbidly obsessed with sin and guilt? <laughs> well, I mean, imagine walking around the cemetery saying to the residents of the cemetery, it's gonna be okay. Right? We have to be realistic about what the problem is. But if we stop there, then yeah, this is the most pessimistic thing that we can, we might as well live in ignorance, right? But we've got to understand our nature if we're going to understand God's cure. We've got to see the bad news or we'll never actually hear the good news. By nature, we are spiritually dead. But in verse 4, uh, come the two words that theologians will say are, are the two most significant words in the Bible. You know, verses 1 through 3, you were dead, you were enslaved, you were deceived. Verse 4, but God. But God shows up. Uh, there's this problem in Ephesians. Uh, God, is, God is building a family, but he looks around and all of the candidates for membership in this family, what's the problem? They're all dead. <laughs> And so if God is going to build his family, he's going to have to raise us from the dead. And that's what he says that he does. Verses 4 and 5. Um, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in sin, but God saved us. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. Um, we were dead, but God saved us. You know, the word saved is like, I don't know, it sounds lame. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm a pastor, and when people say, yeah, I got saved, and whatever, they tell you their story. I'm like, I hate that word, saved, like that. Um, it sounds crass, it sounds uneducated, it sounds... Um, this is how we should feel when, when we hear, God saved me. Several months ago, we were at the pool with our kids and a couple of their families, and we're sitting there, the adults are, are sitting there together and we're having a good time and this, this other person who's at the pool, this kind of middle-aged man, walks around the corner and his shorts are like soaking wet. I'm like, what's with this guy? And as he walks around the corner, he's got one of our kids 
who has gone into the pool without the floaties on. And all of a sudden we're just overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, God just saved us. I mean, that could have been the end. And this man was there. And he saved us. And that would have changed our whole lives, right? We're just overwhelmed by this sense of, I mean, on the one hand, like, I'm the worst parent in the world. And yet God is so good to us. And that's what we should feel when we read verse 4. God just saved us. We were dead. This would have been the end, but God saved us. God saved me. The message, message of Ephesians is that God is building a family, and if he's going to build a family out of people like us, he's going to have to raise us from the dead. And so that's what he does. Verse 5. When we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. And God raised us from the dead, and he breathes new life into us. Uh, I have a friend who likes to say that there are three ways to look at God. There are three ways to look at God. Imagine you're drowning in a lake. Verse one, or the, the first option says, um, Jesus comes to you, you're drowning in a lake, and Jesus says, you can make it, you know, just try, keep up, you know, you can just paddle a little bit harder. I did it, you can do it. The second option, you're drowning in that lake, and Jesus comes and says, here, let me throw you a rope. You know, you hold on to your end, I'll hold on to my end, I'll pull you to shore. The third option is, You've stopped splashing around. You're not trying anymore. You're dead. And you're sinking to the bottom of the lake, and Jesus jumps into the water, and he picks up your lifeless body, and he drags you back to the shore, and he breathes new life into you. Now, only one of those is Christianity. Religion might look like one or two, but only the third is really biblical Christianity. Paul says, God made us alive in Christ. Okay, he says three things. Verse 5, he made us alive. Verse 6, he says he raised us with Christ. And then the third, last part of verse 6, he says, and he seats us in the heavenly places. <laughs> he made us alive, he raised us, and then he seats us in heaven in Christ. Now, um, he's describing three things that God does. But the interesting thing is that's what God did for Jesus resurrection, ascension, and then um, theologians talk about the, the session of Jesus, the heavenly session that he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, that he rules. Um, resurrection, ascension, and, and uh, session. But what Paul is talking about here is not what happened to Jesus. He's talking about what happened to you. God puts us where only Jesus deserves to be. And that's the message of Christianity. Uh, the message of Christianity is that God puts himself in the place that only we deserve to be, on the cross. And that God puts us in the place that only Jesus deserves to be. Raised to new life, ascended, seated at the right hand of God. Christianity is God gets, Jesus gets what you deserve, and you get what Jesus deserves. So do you see why you can never look at Christians and say, um, well, let me put it like this. Do you see why you can never look at Christianity as pessimistic about, about human beings? I mean, sure, there's a realistic, I think, pessimism about you know, people in the world. 
But it's not that alone. Because what Paul is saying here is that the destiny of human beings in Christ is to be seated at the right hand of God. And I don't know of any other human you know, worldview that has as optimistic or has, a, has lofty goals for human beings as this. In Christ, you are seated next to God. You are dead by nature, but by grace, by God's initiative, because Christ, you have been given new life, you've been raised, and you've been seated at the right hand of God. You were lost, and God found you. You were an orphan, and he adopted you. God saved you. Can you believe it? God saved me. So the question then is this. What do you think would happen if you began to live like that was actually true? Well, what Paul says at the end of the passage is that we would, uh, if we lived like that was really true, that that would make us radically grateful, humble people, and that that would compel us out into the world to do good in the world. Uh, it would make us humble because this is not something that we've done ourselves. Verse 4, it says, you know, we were dead. In verse 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. We were dead. Things were not going well but God. It doesn't say... But Bryce, <laughs> you know, it doesn't say, but Bryce, like, he woke up one day and went to the seminar and he figured out how to, um, you know, become a whatever. Um, Bryce turned his life around. No, it says, while I was ignorant of God, he found me. God found me. If you are in Christ, then you are the recipient of God's grace. Okay? If you are in Christ, you're the recipient of God's grace. Let me say that in just a slightly different way. You know, the religious language, like we're too, whatever, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Think about it like this. If you are in Christ, then you are, the, you are God's charity case. You know, most of us, I think, would say, no, I'm not the charity case. I'm the one who, like, I give charity, okay? But I'm not the charity case. Um, according to Paul, you don't... Um, no God unless you have been the recipient of his charity. You know what? Being a part of the family, being in the family of God means bringing your needs and it means letting the family serve you. You got into God's great, uh, family by grace. You are the recipient of his charity. In um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, it's this, uh, he tells this story about a man in hell who gets a day pass to heaven. And uh, this man who's in hell, he lived a very decent, very good, very moral life. And he gets a day pass to heaven and he takes this bus to heaven and he gets there. And his tour guide in heaven, he says, I know you. You are a murderer on earth. And the murderer's like, I know. Can you believe it? I'm in heaven. It's amazing, right? And uh, the man from hell is just disgusted. Um, how did you get in here? And... Um, you know, how did you get in here? The murderer, or the, the murderer says, you know, the murderer who's in heaven says, everything in here is for the asking. Nothing can be purchased, nothing can be bought, but it's all here for the asking. And the man from hell says, not me, I will never take anyone's bleeding charity. And the murderer in heaven says, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You can't buy your way in here. There are only charity cases. It's the only way to get into heaven. What about you? Have you, you asked for God's charity? He's gracious. He gives it graciously and lavishly. 
Have you asked for it? Do you know that you have nothing on your own, but in Christ you have everything? He is giving you everything. You sit where Christ is seated, the right hand of God. If you have been the recipient of his charity, if you have received God's grace, if you know that you're only who you are because you're God's charity case, then, I mean, think about that. I have more than I could have ever imagined, and yet I didn't deserve any of it. I mean, that would move us out into the world humbly. Like, you can't have a big head because you don't deserve any of it. God did all of this for you. And yet you can't just sit around and say, well, I'm just going to enjoy it now. I'm just, this is all for me to, to bask in the glory of what God has done for me. If you know God's grace, Paul says, you'll move out humbly into the world and do all kinds of good in it. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine not having to worry about um, anything? I mean, can you imagine that? Like, I don't have, like, I could spend as much money as I'm physically able to spend and I don't need to worry about. I need to worry about working another day in my life. I don't need to worry about running out of money. I don't need to worry about running out of time. I was talking with somebody who said, you know, you know, we always have these dreams of like, what if I won the lottery? And like, I would run a nonprofit. That would be great, right? Well, there's a sense in which God said, like, that's true of you in Christ. You don't have to worry about running out because God has raised you to new life. He's, he's raised you to heaven. He's seated you at the right hand of God. There, you cannot run out of anything. You have a Father who is gracious to you. You can stop worrying about yourself. And when you stop worrying about yourself, you realize, man, i got so much time that I can actually begin to care for people in a way that is genuine and it's not just about making myself feel better. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. He finishes with this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think it's fascinating what a twisted obsession we have as human beings with good works. Um, You know, I said this earlier, but people say to me all the time, I'm a good person. Hey, back off, man. I'm a good person. And then in the next breath, we'll say something like, I believe God accepts me just as I am, unconditionally. And we say those two things like they're just common sense without recognizing that apart from Jesus, they are inherently contradictory. Like, how can you say I'm a good person and think it doesn't matter? Like, why are you justifying yourself to me and saying God accepts me regardless of who I am? But Christianity says, you know, without God, you're not really, you're not really a good person. You're dead. But God raised, God raised you in Christ, and therefore you have all the reason to do good in the world. See, the reality is that, uh, that, Christ, uh, that good works are, fun, are, um, are essential to Christianity. But they're not the foundation of it. Good works are in no way the, the reason that God accepts us. They're not the foundation of our faith, but they are the fruit of it. And if we look at our lives and we don't see good works coming out of them, then we have to wonder if the foundation is actually there. Good works are absolutely indispensable to Christianity. They're the fruit of our faith. Love and care and compassion are the fruit that grows out of the heart that has been set free. Life overflows from a person 
into whom God has breathed new life. I think that this is the most interesting and unique and compelling view of human beings that I have ever experienced. I mean, why is it that people are so stinking frustrating sometimes and so incredible at the same time? I mean, what else could explain? I can see one or the other, but how can you have both at the same time? It's because we were dead in our sin, but God has raised us in Christ. We're dead in sin and alive in Christ and sent into the world as monuments of God's goodness. Um, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are God having raised us from life, sends us into the world as like little trophies of his grace. You know, there are some uh, works, some like uh, a work of art or a building or just a magnificent thing that someone has made. And you look at it and you think, this is beautiful or this is stunning. This is, wow, this is incredible. But there are some works that you look at and they make you wonder about the one who created them. You look at the pyramids, like how in the world, you know, without tractors, <laughs> did they do that? It makes you wonder about the people who created them. And God is saying that's what the person who is dead and has been raised to life in Christ and goes out into the world as a monument of his grace is like. You know, people should look at us and go, oh my gosh, I, you, I knew you back when. Uh, what kind of being did this in you? How in the world did that happen to her? Friends, this is the message of Christianity. By nature, we are dead. But God gives us new life in Christ. It's there for the asking. He raises us, he gives us new life, he raises us, and he seats us with him. And then he sends us out in the world to stop worrying about ourselves to do all kinds of good in the world. This is who we are. This is what it means to be in the family of God. Can you believe it? God has made a family out of people like us. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. I pray that um, the reality of this passage, um, the truth that we are dead and the truth that we are alive in Christ would not just um, be to us empty words, but that we would receive these words as a balm for our souls, that we would know Jesus more fully having spent this time reflecting on what he has done for us. God, help us to reach out to you because you have put that seed of faith in us. Help us to call out to you to receive the grace, the charity that you offer so lavishly in Jesus. Amen.